And what are we going to be looking at here uh, over the next several weeks? So again, everything is going to be under, let's, can we go back to the, the original slide, just the, the image? So everything is basically about this bigger context of the image of God, which we'll, I'll show you a video about what that is in a moment. Um, but this is all ultimately looking at the concept of the image of God as it's displayed in race. So today we'll take a look at the subject of race or racism, um, the image of God as it informs or gives life to this concept of race. Uh, next, uh, we'll take a look at the co- concept of gender. That's not today, it's for another week. Um, male, female, gender roles. How does that play out in culture and society? Um, how to address some of the subjects and issues and whatnot that have been a part of the cultural milieu of America and perhaps even large part is still part of the uh, cultural landscape of the world where women are oftentimes oppressed by dominate, dominating men and how to make sense of some of this. Um, and then thirdly, we'll take a look at the subject of sexuality and how it plays out, how important, how definitive. Does that, is that where we get our identity from? Is our sexuality, our sexual impulses, our sexual desires, how to make sense of that? And then finally, we'll take a look at the subject of life. And this, can, this is going to be a pretty broad topic, which is going to span from the womb to the tomb and everything in between. And uh, this, we might even kind of break this up into a couple because I think there's some important things we don't want to overlook. Um, and this will obviously involve, to some degree, the subject of immigrants and refugees and how should the church think about that. Everybody seems to have, a, have an opinion on that on Facebook, right? Have you noticed that? And uh, about how should the church, how should God's people think about these things? Um, these are important subjects, I think, for us to at least look at and to consider and to see what God has to say about them. So... That's kind of the big idea over the next few weeks that we will begin to kind of jump in and hopefully have our hearts and our minds shaped by. So with that, I'm going to jump right in and uh, we're going to show a little clip uh, because again, all of this is sort of couched in the bigger, broader banner of the image of God. So the question is, what does it mean to bear the image of God? This is an important Bible concept or theme or topic. Um, What does the Bible have to say about this big broad theme called the image of God. So I'm going to let uh, our friends over at the Bible Project who do amazing videos um, do what they do best, which is teach. So here we go. So if you lived in ancient Bible times, odds are you lived under the authority of a king. And many of these kings claimed that they were gods, and they would even call themselves the image of God. Meaning they had authority to tell people what to do, order things to be made. Yeah, they got to define good and evil. And these kings would often make statues of themselves, which in Hebrew were called selim, often translated as idol or image. But for Israel... They didn't view their kings as the God. In fact, they were never supposed to even make images of God. It's exactly right, and that was really unique for that time and culture. This is rooted, first of all, in Israel's belief that you can't reduce the creator God down to any one thing in creation. But there's another reason. People aren't to make images of God because God has already made images of himself. When did he do that? Let's go to page one of the Bible. And the first person we meet there is God. He's the one with authority over all creation. He speaks and creation obeys. And he defines what is good and not good. In other words, he alone is king. But then surprisingly, as the pinnacle of all of God's creative work, he makes humans. And he calls all of them the image of God. So he gives all humans the authority to rule. Exactly. That's what he goes on to say. He tells the humans to subdue the earth and to rule it. 
And so this task that once belonged only to elite kings is here in the Bible the task of every human being. This was a revolutionary statement in its day because all humans are being called to rule and to participate in the human project. So what does this mean? I mean, how are we all supposed to rule? So the picture we get in Genesis is gardening. Gardening? Yes, gardening. So they rule the earth by cultivating it, by harnessing all of the earth's raw potential and then making something more and new out of it. So growing food for each other. Yes, but that also includes growing families then, which become neighborhoods. And then they create communities where people are going to work and take care of each other and build businesses and cities that will expand to new places and so on. So ruling is really the day-to-day acts of our work and creativity. Yes, we take the world somewhere. This is humanity's divine and sacred task. Yeah, and this all sounds really nice. And humans have designed some pretty great things. But just as often we create things that cause a lot of suffering and a lot of injustice, so maybe we shouldn't actually be ruling. Yeah, so the Bible addresses this. In Genesis, what happens is that God gives humans a choice about how they're going to rule. So are they going to use their authority for the benefit of others, which is God's definition of good, or are they going to turn away and define good and evil for themselves and use their authority for self-advantage? And in the story, they choose to define good and evil on their own terms. And so this is the Bible's depiction of the human condition. So sometimes we pull off amazingly good stuff, but just as often, despite our best intentions, we act selfishly and we create evil in the world. And so we're stuck as mediocre rulers making a mess of things. But that's not the end of the story. So the Bible goes on and it makes this claim that all of this was resolved when God bound himself to humanity through Jesus. And he showed us what it looks like to truly rule as a human. So what does it look like? Well, Jesus ruled by serving and by seeking the best for others, by putting himself underneath them and loving not just his friends, but also his enemies. And that's not a typical way to rule. And not only that, Jesus confronted the consequences of all of the evil and the death that we have created by our messed up ways of ruling. And he takes it. I mean, he lets it kill him. And so when the New Testament writers looked back to Jesus' resurrection, they see a whole new future opening up for all humanity. Jesus is a new way to be human. Yeah, that's why they called Jesus the image of God or the new human. And not only that, they also believe that Jesus' divine life and power is now available to heal and to transform us to become our life and power. And this sounds really nice, but what does it really look like? So... Practically, the Apostle Paul said it looks like people being filled by Jesus' own presence and spirit, filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and integrity and gentleness and self-control. He says this is the new humanity that God wants to create in us so that we become people in whom God's image is being restored, people who will move the human project forward. And that's actually how the story of the Bible ends. It's a renewed world where God is on his throne and his servants are all around him, but they're the ones ruling over this new world, taking it into new, uncharted territory with Jesus as their healer and their guide. So I want to begin with kind of a personal story 
uh, for me, and then I'll kind of jump into uh, various passages that we'll take a look at. So uh, several years ago, I had, we had a unique circumstance happen in our, our church community. There was a gal, um, without going into the backstory of it all, um, her husband had died, and uh, the other guy that was in the car, uh, that had, or another car that had died as well, was part of the, the Muslim community. So we actually had a, a memorial service here, which I did for her husband, and then um, there's a very large, probably about 100 or so, um, uh, community Muslims that were part of that grief that actually came to show support to her, which is pretty, pretty profound. And then from that point forward, kind of developed some, you know, loose relationships and friendships, but then obviously time gets by and, you know, you don't have too much dialogue and contact, whatever. And then probably about a, several months ago, I began to realize that obviously within our context, you know, we, we see each other, um, say hi every once in a while, there's a, a collegiality or cordialness that happens at oftentimes, but, you know, in my mind, I realize that the bigger, broader scenarios that are happening and taking place within our culture and our community at large can oftentimes create kind of stereotyping where... Um, we could look at an entire swath of uh, people and say, well, they must all be, uh, you know, m- uh, terrorists or they must all be bad people because of their skin color. And so that oftentimes leads to some forms of um, um, overreacting and whatnot. But the reality is, is that, you know, we know that obviously not all are like that. In the same way, if we were to apply the same type of logic to Christianity, we realize that there are some nutcases that call themselves Christians, Right. And most of us that, that would have to kind of bear the brunt and bear the burden of realizing that there's some nut jobs that call themselves Christians that do really dumb stuff, that, that might not necessarily represent us. So the question for me became, like, how, how can I do my part in society, in my city that I love, Central Coast, San Luis Obispo, to demonstrate, to be an agent of God's kindness and love in this community? Obviously, that involves, you know, sharing the gospel, but also, first of all, involves just showing love, kindness. That's, that's how the gospel begins, is God um, came showing love and kindness. So for me, I'm, I'm wrestling with that and asking myself how to do that. So I, I made a phone call to the mosque in town. Um, I got to know some of them through that scenario that took place a couple years ago. Um, but again, like I said, had fallen out of a relationship, lost phone numbers, and so on and so forth. So I thought, you know, I'm going to make a phone call. And there was no response, and I obviously forgot about it. Life gets busy, and so on and so forth. So uh, about a week and a half ago, I, I, I thought, you know what? I want to maybe just, what, what would happen if I just stopped by the mosque and, and walked in and said hi and introduced myself and maybe rekindle some of those friendships that were there uh, from a couple of years ago. So I actually did that. So about a week and a half ago, I was driving by the mosque. It's right over, I'm not sure what street that is, over up Santa Rosa and whatever that is. Um, I, I got off. I parked right in front of there. I got out of my car, walked in. Obviously, um, the, the, there's an older gentleman that was inside there. He was sitting down praying. It was probably one of the times of the day in which they pray. I think they pray maybe five times a day. And, um, and then there's another guy that's probably about my age. He comes walking out. And we start dialoguing. He can obviously tell that I, you know, I was out of place. And he's like, oh, would you mind taking off your shoes? I was like, oh, sorry. So I took off my shoes, and you know, that's showing the kindness and whatnot. So uh, I introduced myself. I'm, you know, my name is Brian. I'm a pastor here in town, obviously. I'm a Christian. Um, you know, realize that many of us, you know, we, you know, we, we might have differences in the way that we you know, understand God and whatnot. But at the end of the day, you and I, we, we're both citizens of the Central Coast. We're both people that, that share space here in San Luis Obispo. And... You know, I'm not sure how the circumstances of our, you know, country right now are affecting you or causing you to feel displaced or fearful or full of anxiety, whatever. But as, as a citizen and as a follower of Jesus, I just want to say, I'm glad you're here. 
and I'm, I'm thankful that you're here, and I'd you know, love to just extend a welcome, you know, hand of gratitude and thankfulness. So he reached out his hand, he shook my hand, he's like, thank you, and I gave him a hug, and we kind of hugged, and it was, you know, we, he pulled away, you know, not in a weird way pulled away, but just, he pulled away, and he was just like, thank you, that really, really, really meant a lot to me, like, I really appreciate that. And um, my, my intention is to go back and to continue just to, to show God's love and to build friendship. Um, my, my ultimate hope is that somehow, some way, by, by showing God's love, um, by, by being one, an agent that demonstrates and shows God's love, that maybe someday they, they, they might even come to know the love of Christ. Like, that, that's my hope. Um, again, it's not, not an agenda, not, not an attempt to somehow, like, subvert or be subversive, but to just show the love of God in a very tangible, simple, simplistic type of a way. Um, realizing that there may be some fears and concerns generated by culture and society at large and anxieties and so on and so forth that people are dealing with. Um, so... I say that to just simply point out the fact that we live in a culture in which racism is real. It's, it's, it's real. It's there. Racism um, is not an issue that has to do with the North and the South that might play into it. Racism, first and foremost, is not a systematic uh, oppression, although it, that is present in some contexts. Racism, the heart of racism, is also not... Uh, necessarily about being informed, though that also plays into that. Um, and the heart of racism ultimately is the sinful condition and nature of, of human beings and deeply connected to the fall of, of Adam. And we'll look at that in just a moment here. But the, here's the beautiful reality of it, just like the video pointed out, that there is redemption from racism ultimately in a new humanity, new G- in Jesus. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of why this idea, this topic cannot be avoided. We can't just simply turn away from it. We can't ignore it. We can't deny it. We have to recognize that it's there. And because it's there, there are those that are deeply impacted and affected by that. And, uh, and we, we, have to, we have to figure out ways because the gospel will not allow us to not think about these things. Like, we have to think about these things. Like I said, first and foremost, these may be political elements, but they first and foremost play out in, in Scripture. And then they do inevitably make their way out into the political scenario as well. But what we see is that Jesus seeks to subvert the racism in, in our hearts that are there. So what are we talking about when we're talking about racism? And then what I want to do this morning is I want to begin to just take a look at what does the Bible have to say about the subject? How does the Bible address this? Now, one of the things I want to address before we even jump into this is that each of these topics, um, we've actually spoken on these things throughout the years. I, I, I weave them into messages often, and the reality is, though, I realize that sometimes these subjects can be lost in a larger context. So, for example, if, 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 a, if a sermon series, say the Book of Acts series, is like a book, all right? It's like a book. You go to your library, you get a book. Um, a sermon, like one week, listen to me for, you know, you know, yell at you for an hour, that's like a chapter. Some of the things that I might say, the sentences that I say or paragraphs that I say are just sentences within that chapter. So if you were to read an entire novel and then ask someone, hey, do you remember that paragraph about blah, blah, blah? And you're like, no, I don't remember that because it got lost in kind of the bigger, broader book itself. So I have addressed each one of these things that we're going to be looking at on numerous occasions, but I realize that sometimes they might get lost. So one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to just take a few weeks to just address the topics as they're there and to just look at the topics and to try to understand from Scripture 
what does God have to say about these things? Does that make sense? You guys good with that? So that's what we'll do. Today, again, the subject is racism or race in particular. So what is racism? So I figured I'd just kind of start with a definition. It's out of Merriam-Webster's. It says this, racism, I don't have it up on the screen, so just listen. Racism is a belief that race is a primary determinant in or of human traits and capacities, and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority in a particular race. So in short, it simply means that there's a tendency to look at certain traits or racial tendencies or racial realities that you and I have and look at that and compare it to other people and say, well, the reason why I'm you know, smarter or better or more gifted or more athletic or whatever or more creative is because of my race. And my race must be better than your race. And so what ends up happening is we become sort of tribal, tribalized. And the definition for that is racism. It's a, it's a problem. It's a worldwide problem. Um, it's always been a problem. And it didn't just get imported into America uh, several hundred years ago. It was exasper- exacerbated by all sorts of circumstances. But the reality is it's there because it's in the heart of humanity. And what I want to try to do is at least address some of those tendencies that are there and to um, end with by looking at how does the gospel speak to and seek to replace those racial tendencies that are there and then ultimately turn us into uh, neighborly individuals that love each other, like, like actually actively, like in the video. And how many of you guys actually in the video actually saw when we were describing like the evils of the world? You saw the little Furby? See that? That was awesome. I, I missed that like after the first time I saw it, and then I saw it the second time. I was like, that's awesome. Somebody thought Furbies are evil. This is, these are people after their own heart. This is great. But the fact of the matter is, is that there are, but another image in there that kind of shows they're holding swords, and then each of those swords are kind of turned into um, um, productive elements that make society awesome, right? Like a, like a pan with an egg in it, or, you know, or a compass to you know, create stuff and whatnot. So the point of the matter is, how do we allow the gospel to change us and transform us so that we can become um, people who love God and love others and ultimately live in a way that, that takes the gospel on the road? In other words, we describe that as living on mission for the gospel. So with that, let's jump in. We'll take a look at five different things. If you guys are taking notes, you can write these down. If not, they're going to be up on the screen. I'll just go through them. First of all, we're going to take a look at the fact that all humanity or all ethnicities are made in the image of God. So just like the video pointed out, I'll reiterate this. This is one point, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Again, I won't spend much time on this because the video already did a good job of that. That God made man, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created male and female. So the idea is that God himself had a purpose. God created mankind in his image, in his likeness. There's something which God had in his mind when he was creating, when he was speaking humanity and all that which is material in this world into existence, God had a purpose for this. Um, And so uh, wisdom would say, well, what is that purpose? I'm going to figure out what that purpose is, and I'm going to line my life up with that purpose. Foolishness would say, I don't really care what that wisdom is or whatever the idea that God has. I want to figure it out for myself. And that's, for the most part, what the video pointed out, is that we had this tendency, rather than aligning our hearts or synchronizing our thoughts and our minds with God, we basically have said, I'm going to figure this out on my own. I don't need um, God to tell me how to live my life, or I don't need God's input to tell me what's, what's up. I'll just figure it out on my own. And so what we see is that all humanity, first and foremost, is actually made in the image of God. So there's this, this unity that ultimately comes back to the reality of, of God, God's 
this common reality, common denominator that binds us all. Secondly, is we'll take a look at that all humanity came from one human ancestor. Um, he identifies it as Adam and Eve. Um, later, Paul would actually kind of, uh, the Apostle Paul picks up on this theme. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, he uh, describes as he's given this address or sermon or you know, monologue, whatever, how you want to think about it, to the, uh, the, the, the inhabitants of this great city, the Athenians. And what he says to them is this, in Acts chapter 17, verse 26. God made from one, that's Adam and Eve ultimately, um, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So two things, first of all, to note. One is that God is the maker of all these ethnic groups. Again, even though we are all created in the image of God, it's what Paul is kind of just acknowledging the fact that God is the one that created all these things. The second thing he wants those Athenians to identify and understand is that God made all these ethnic groups uh, by way of one ancestor. So when he says God made from one every nation, the word nation there in the Greek is uh, the Greek word ethnos. Um, we get the word you know, ethnicity from. So every ethnic group God created. Every ethnic group that we see on planet Earth originated from one common ancestor. That's what God's basically describing. That's what Paul's affirming. And so this is an important reality because why Paul would say this to these guys, the Athenians, is kind of an interesting backstory. But um, the Athenians, they actually had kind of this thing that they were proud of, that they basically believed that the Athenian people, the Athenian tribe or group of people or nation of people, that they were uh, naturally created within their own community, that they didn't come in as immigrants. They were always there. They always inhabited that land. They literally came out of automatically, came out of the dust of the ground itself, that they were always inhabitants. So therefore, the land belongs to them, the name belongs to them. That the idea is this, is that the Athenians had sort of this cultural, ethnocentric pride that said we are greater than the barbarians or the Scythians, if you're familiar with any of these ancient, great, massive civilizations, that the idea was that the Athenians had this sense of pride. We are great, we are powerful. And what Paul's point seems to be indicating is that actually, that's not true. So he, he's, he's carefully addressing, uh, he doesn't have a problem to, you know, to contradict maybe some of their cultural sensibilities, to just simply say, actually, that's not true. But the reality is that all humanity, barbarian, Scythian, and Athenian, all came from one family. All came from the heart of Yahweh, God himself. And Paul goes in to basically say, I want to tell you about this, this Yahweh that is on a mission to do something awesome. So, third thing we'll take a look at is that all humanity is actually complicit in turning from God. All humanity is complicit in turning from God. So again, Romans chapter 3 is a passage that might be familiar to some of you. Um, Paul is writing to a bunch of followers of Jesus living in the ancient city of, of Rome. If you're familiar with the ancient you know, landscape, you know that Rome would, would have been like the, the most important, most significant central capital of the entire sprawling Roman Empire. So it was really significant. But in the middle of this Roman Empire, this sprawling empire, God was actually calling out people for himself. Um, these were followers of Jesus, and they were being brought into this, this church, which has been with us on Sunday mornings. You know that the church predominantly started out as an ethnocentric community of Jesus' people that were Jewish. 
but the church began to grow. It was, it was God's intention always from the beginning to have a universal church, meaning that all people from all nations, all tribes, all tongues would be brought into this community. So as it's growing, this church is sprawling into the city of the likes of Rome, and Paul's not writing to these people. And he's addressing them on ethnocentric questions. So what a question that Paul asks, he says, are Jews actually better off? Earlier, Paul asked, are, are, are Jews in a better position? And what he actually answers is that yes, in some ways, because they actually had the Bible, whereas, you know, Gentile nations, they didn't have the Bible, but Jewish people, they actually had the oracles of God, Scripture, so they can look at, so they were actually walking in some, some degree of light, even though there was disobedience in their heart. But now Paul continues his argument, and here's what he just simply says, are Jews actually better off because they have the Bible, because they have some of these other unique privileges or advantages um, by having prophets and being in the lineage of Moses and Abraham. Paul actually says, actually, no, they're not better off. No, not at all. For all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, this is Paul's way of saying all humanity, all ethnicities, whether you're Jew, whether you're Greek, whether you're Athenian, barbarian, Scythian, whoever you are, whoever your background is, all of us are under sin. I'll, I'll, uh, then he goes on by finishing by making some references to Old, Test, uh, Old Testament passages. But the phrase there, under sin, so if you think about it this way, the way the Bible oftentimes describes the concept of sin, this is important to understand, sin is not only described as actions that we do, but it's also described as a power that we're submitted under. So it's not only things that we do, so we can do sinful things, um, and, and again, the, the, the heart of the word sin just simply means to miss the mark. So the question naturally is, then what is the mark that we should be hitting, the bullseye? Well, the mark is whatever the designer or the creator had in mind. Does that make sense? So, for example, I've given this analogy before. It's not a really good one, but you're welcome. Um, I, I, drive a, I drive a truck, and I love my truck. It's an old 2001 Forerunner, and I, I love it. It's beat up, it's junky, it's, but it drives great. And the fact of the matter is, is that the, the designer of the truck, I have no idea who it was, but he had certain intentions, or she had certain intentions, of which how this truck is to function and flourish and to get me from point A to point B. It involves, obviously, you know, routine checkups and oil changes and gasoline. Certain types of gasoline need to be put in that. Now, if I were to be like, gasoline, that's so expensive, it costs so much, I can put coconut water in there for way cheaper. It's way cheaper. I can go to the dollar store and buy a ton of it, and it's way cheaper. I would not be adding a benefit to my car. I would be actually destroying it because I'm treating it in a way in which it was not designed to function. It will not function. It will not get me from point A to point B. It will become inanimate. It will no longer be able to function and work, and it will end up dying. And sin at its heart has this idea of saying, I don't want to do what the creator has designed this thing to do and to live according to whatever the functions are in which a creator is designed for it to, I will make up my own intentions and purposes and try to make it work on its own, independent from the creator's intentions. That's what sin is. It's missing the mark. Now, there's all sorts of consequences that come as a result of that, brokenness, death, sin, disease, offense, um, judgment, all these other things. But at the heart of the concept of sin is a basic disregard to the creator's intention. That's, that's really sin as an action. This is talking about, I think what Paul is describing here, sin as a power. That all are under the power of sin. We've all been seduced by these sinful proclivities and desires 
to disregard the creator God, to do what we want to do, to live according to our own tribal minds, to live according to society and create society regardless of how God desires for society to be uh, functioning and flourishing. And what has happened, that Jew and Gentile alike have what Jesus would say, is that we are all uh, enslaved by sin. So salvation is not just being forgiven for sin, though it is that, but salvation is also being free from a slave master of sin. And what Paul is saying here is that all of us, all humanity, no matter who you are, no matter what color of your skin, no matter what type of background you come from, all of us have at some point drank the juice. All of us, at some point, we've been seduced by this power of, of sin. We've all been tainted by it and its effects. We're all complicit in this. That's what his whole point is. All have turned aside in verse 12 and gone um, together. They have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. Again, don't get too hung up in the word worthless. The idea there is just we've all missed the purpose for which God has originally designed for all things to be. So again, like in the video, rather than thriving, rather than flourishing, rather than using our creative genius to bring about good and benefit and kindness uh, to other people, we create and concoct things that are oftentimes destructive. I think it was Descartes who once said that man is not only the glory of the universe, but also its shame. Think about that. It's powerful. Man is the, both the glory and the shame of the universe. He's basically just quoting scripture. It's true. God created mankind. One of the Psalms says to be a little lower than angels, but he crowned him with glory. So this is one of the mixed contradictory realities about humanity is on the one hand we can create amazing things like pizza and toilet paper and like the video pointed out. All right. So if you're listening to this on, you know, podcast, that's where it comes from. But or at the same time, we can also create things that are destructive like bombs and other means of destructiveness. So not only by destroying others, but by destroying others, we're actually crushing and destroying the very image of God in others. So, we're all complicit in turning from God. Fourthly, we see that God actually intends to save all people from all ethnic groups. And this is where the good news becomes back within the sight of all this. In Matthew chapter 28, he says this, that all authority, just Jesus speaking, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The word nations there again is the Greek word ethnos. It's the idea, the indication that Jesus' heart, Jesus' mind is that all people from all ethnicities, all backgrounds, all skin colors, all nations would become disciples, followers of this king, this new human, this new reality, this new king that is seeking to uh, completely rebuild something that has been destroyed and squandered and ruined. That this is what the king is up to. This is what Jesus is seeking to do. So the fifth thing, we'll look at this and we'll wrap this up, that God is ultimately creating new humanity from all ethnicities. That rather than uh, causing further division, that God's aim is to draw out of all ethnicities, all differences, all backgrounds, and to say, I'm creating a brand new humanity that bears and reflects the image of Jesus. That doesn't mean that we stop becoming white or stop becoming brown or stop becoming, because it's the reality, it's, it's, that does not happen. But it means that those realities that might define you are, are, are not ultimately what defines you. What ultimately defines you is a brand new humanity, a brand new reality that is a gift from God, a brand new identity 
that he bestows upon you. So listen to what some of the New Testament writers say, and uh, just think about this. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 11 says, there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So this is Paul's way of saying, look, the various cultural boundaries, the various things that have been erected as a part of our culture at large are, that divide and separate and distinguish between the haves and the have-nots, the people that have power and those that are oppressed, um, those are no longer boundary markers within this new humanity that is creating. What he's saying is that really, in the way the church, the way that Christians, followers of Jesus should think about this, you and I should think about this, is that God is actually doing something in this world that's far more beautiful than just simply saying, just accept and embrace everybody, or just simply find people that are just like you and hang out with them. He's saying, I'm creating a brand new humanity in which we still have these traces and elements of which, in ways in which God created us, but what truly, ultimately identifies us is Jesus, that Christ is in all. That God's creating a brand new reality out of all of this. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 is this great passage that uh, many believe in, in the future that one day this image, this picture that all nations will be around the throne of God. It says this, And I saw a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and languages, stood before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes. The, the, the picture that's being uh, portrayed here, that out of every nation, out of every people group, out of every ethnicity, out of every nation on planet Earth, that God is calling, God is bringing these people together, and they will be united as one in Christ in front of the throne of God, washed, cleansed, purified, forgiven, made brand new. This is what is all indicative of the concept of white robes. So again, if this is future, and God is doing this, God is, God is, God's plan, God's big idea, God's concept in the future is to do this, if we were to reverse engineer our lives from that reality now into today, we begin to ask questions, what should that look like now? If we're going to live according to this future reality now, how do we begin to implement that now? One final verse, and I'll move on with some closing thoughts. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come, and all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. And he described that uh, one of the... uh, calls that we have as being ambassador of Christ is to represent this message of reconciliation. Now, there's a lot of discussion, talk, and conversation in the world today, especially in America, about racial reconciliation. It's a big topic. Um, Maybe not so much in San Luis Obispo, right? I mean, I think for the most part in San Luis Obispo, I I don't, I mean, there are pockets in America where this is far more of a tinderbox than than others. but the reality is, are there people on the Central Coast that may be feeling elements of this? Probably, no doubt. There's, without question, I know there are. But the reality is, there's other places where it's more intense. But the question, I think, that becomes poignant for us, how do we begin to wrestle with this um, concept of reconciliation? Is this even a Bible concept? And I, it's what I want to try to prove to you, is that absolutely, yes, this is, first and foremost, a Bible subject. That reconciliation is something that matters intensely to God. First and foremost, God, God is 
is of great concern as to whether or not you or I, are you reconciled to God? Are you walking in relationship with God? Or do you find yourself estranged from God, at a distance from God, put off by God, running from God, hiding from God, not wanting to be around God? Um, or, you know, I mean, often the way we play this is that we can go to church and still in our hearts, our hearts are far from God, we're distant from God. God wants to be reconciled to you. But then through that, he wants to use you to be an agent of reconciliation. That's why he says he gives us in this ministry of reconciliation. One of the ways in which we say this, or that Jesus kind of put it this way, he says what the heart or the aim of God is up to in this world is, and we say this as a church, is so that we would create disciples that love God, Right? We're reconciled to God because you don't love somebody unless you're reconciled to them. And love our neighbors, love others. Love God and love neighbors. That's what God calls us to. That's what reconciliation looks like. Become these agents of reconciliation. This is a really big thing to God's heart. What does it look like? So these are things that we're trying to think about and ask. So I want to finish with a couple practical things to consider and think about, or practical steps, and I'll wrap this up. What are some things that we can do? So one, I would say first and foremost, Humble yourself before God and search your heart. Humble yourself before God and search your heart. So just ask yourself, are there areas in your life in which you have actually wrestled with Rachel, uh, racial, racial prejudice? There we go. That's what I was trying to say. Not Rachel, not racial, but there we go. Ask yourself, are there some of these areas in your heart in which they exist? I mean, really, if, if they do recognize this is a big thing to God, Because God's aim in the cosmos is to eradicate the sin that emboldens racial inequality and destructiveness. That God will one day do away with all of this. It will not be in existence in heaven. When the new heavens and the new earth come into being, it will no longer be in existence. So if it is in existence in your heart now, humbly pray. Ask God to help you. Maybe ask others that maybe you know if it's there. Search your heart. Second thing is practice empathy. Listen to others' grief. I mean, part of the reality of understanding other people is to actually enter into ask questions. Get to understand maybe what their struggles are. If there are people that you know that maybe in your mind, uh, they, again, look, here's as a pastor, I'm going to just speak to you as a pastor now. I've been speaking to you as a pastor, but someone that oftentimes deals and talks with people. The, one of the things I've discovered is that there are circumstances that can be happening in people's lives, and some circumstances that might cause agitation in a person's soul or unrest in a person's soul, some of those might be real and some of those might be perceived. Some of them are real, some of them are perceived. And I have two daughters, and when they were young, sometimes their perceived realities of things around them, the boogeyman under the bed, or the monster in the closet, they're perceived. It's not real. So as a, as a dad, you know, you don't want to go there and scold them. How dare you? How ridiculous of you to think that there's a monster in the closet. It's not true. You don't scold them for that. You show empathy to them. No, no, that's, that's actually not true. And you walk them through it. You show kindness and empathy. You speak truth to them, but you speak truth to them not in a condescending, condemning type of way. You listen to them. And you help bring truth into their life. So empathy is about learning how to come alongside people that are in grief and try to understand why they're in grief. So the final thing is display God's love. And I think one of the most two most tangible ways of doing this is, is just hospitality and embrace. Um, 
going into, kind of like, the, like I just gave an example, the, the, the mosque, is learning how to show some level of hospitality. Again, there may be just beginning steps for me, um, but I'm praying about how I can even continue to build upon that. But the fact of the matter is, is how can we as people demonstrate a sense of hospitality and grace and kindness and love and embrace of people, no matter what kind of circumstances they may be going through, what types of fears might be dominating or crippling or ruining their life. The way that we get to become an agent of help and reconciliation is we interact. We don't run. We don't turn away. And here's the reality. And I'll I'll finish with this thought. The question is, I want to finish with, is where do we get the energy to do this? Like, where do we get the actual power and power meant to do this? And I would suggest this. The way that we get this is because everything I just described in this practical steps are everything that God himself has practiced. First and foremost, to the degree that you see that God was in Christ entering into this world not as a conquering God-like being, but as a man in a Jewish body. In a Jewish body that was subject to hunger, nakedness, distress. Hebrew, uh, the book of Philippians 2 tells us that God actually humbled himself. Christ humbled himself. What's more humbling than that? The second thing is that we see that God actually practicing empathy, that God was in Christ walking alongside people, listening to their grief, listening to their pain. In fact, so much so we're actually told in the book of Isaiah that Christ actually bore our griefs. That's empathy. Bearing someone else's grief and shame and sorrow and hardship. Not mocking it, not ignoring it, not turning away from it, entering entirely into it, making adjustments, making rearrangements, if you would, of their life so that they can then bear and carry that grief and sorrow and shame. That, that's what empathy does, to the degree that you see that God is in this. And finally, displaying God's love. And Paul elsewhere would say that God demonstrated his love to us in that while we were yet in sin, Christ died for us. So I'll finish with this. To the degree that you see that God was in Jesus, humbling himself, bearing upon himself, our grief and our shame, and demonstrating his love to us, to you, to the degree that you imbibe that, to the degree that you believe that, to the degree that you allow that to rearrange your heart, uh, it will actually free you to say that your true life, your identity is not something that is inherited by way of your race or social economic status or the hood that you grew up in. It's a gift from God. That came at great cost, great expense to himself, but motivated radically, powerfully by his love for you. To the degree that you see that and receive that, it will change you, it will transform you, it will allow you to be able to go out and embrace and love and show compassion and kindness and empathy to other people that are completely different than you. And there's no fear of losing your identity because your identity can't be lost. (laughs) You belong to Jesus. You've been given an identity that is quote-unquote eternal. It's not corruptible. It will never fade away. It's reserved in God, in heaven, throughout all the ages to come because it's a gift from God to the degree that you receive and believe this gift that he's given us. It actually frees us, enables us to live out this cultural mandate to love and serve and be agents of reconciliation in this world. So that's the type of people we want to be. We want to allow God's word to inform bring transformation 
to our hearts and our lives as we think hard about some of these things that are crippling in a lot of ways, our culture and society at large. So with that, the gospel is always about an invitation to trust God. So we're going to respond by way of singing. We're going to finish up by way of partaking of communion. And we partake of communion as a way of reminding ourselves that Jesus, when he sat down with his disciples, he invites them to come. No matter who they are, he knew even uh, they would betray him. And Jesus welcomes them to come, and he breaks bread with them as a way of saying, come to me. So we're going to respond. Why don't we all stand, and why don't we tune our hearts to begin to consider and think about who God is. Uh, We have communion in the front, in the back. It's a way for you to partake. And if you're here this morning and there's anything that's going on in your life that maybe you need prayer, we want to pray for you. Maybe you would look at the fact that maybe there are some of these things in your heart that are resident, and you want to confess them before God. You want to ask others to pray for you. Be happy to pray for you. Or maybe you just need a touch from God. Maybe there's circumstances that are going on in your life and you just feel dry and broken and hurt and, or fragile. Uh, this is a time just to let God minister to you, speak to your heart. So I'll be up here. love to pray with you. Maybe some of our other leaders will come to the front as well. They'll be available to pray as well. So let me pray. We'll sing for sake of communion and worship. God, thank you for your great love. So right now, Lord, we uh, turn our hearts to worship, to love you, to sing to you. God, thank you that you liberate us and you free us from the power of sin. God, we know that one day your word tells us that you will ultimately separate us from the very presence of sin itself. But God, continue to free our hearts from the power that grips us, that we're enslaved by it. Make us new people.